This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Luckily, the note worked and the cab driver gave me the craziest look. I just shrugged at him. I was like, hey. <laughs> yep. Whatever the note says, man. Welcome to Game Dev Advice, the game developer's podcast. Your place for resources and in-depth conversations with other game development professionals. I'm your host, John J.P. Podlasic. I've worked at 10 different game companies, starting back in 1989 with the TurboGrafx-16. Over the decades, I've developed games like Mortal Kombat, Avengers Initiative, Beavis and Butthead, and numerous others. I now work for a startup called Level X. But this podcast isn't about me. It's about you and the game development community. So if you have questions or ideas, give a call, 224-484-7733, or go to the gamedevadvice.com website. I have a great episode for you today, so let's kick things off with the new Game Dev Advice. Today's guest is Patrick Curry, a game developer and serial entrepreneur. In his 20-year career, he's founded five companies, mentored numerous startups, and helped ship over 20 games. When not doing startups, Patrick has made games and software for the Walt Disney Company, Midway Games, Marvel Entertainment, and Unity Technologies. Patrick is now the CEO of Farbridge, a VRAR software company he started in Austin, Texas, in 2017. Okay, I've got Patrick Curry here today. Tell me about your current role. Well, I'm the uh, CEO at Farbridge, and we're a VR, AR software company in Austin, Texas. And we do uh, about 50% games and and entertainment software using that technology. And then the other 50%, we've been making uh, educational software, doing projects uh, with people like SciArc, which is a nonprofit in Oakland, as well as the Smithsonian Institute, which is, you know, the big chain of museums in, in Washington, D.C. Oh, that's impressive. That's very cool. So that's a good mix that you have between the two types of genres and stuff. Yeah, I mean, VR and AR is a, an emerging field and, and set of technologies. And one of my big ideas starting Farbridge was that, it, you know, we could use this technology for more than just games. And uh, yeah, really enjoyed exploring the the ideas and, and opportunities on the, the educational and, and just sort of inspirational side of this technology. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's fun to blow stuff up, but it's also fun to teach the kids something. To do. <laughs> exactly. All right. So like, let's go back. Like, how did you get started 
in the video game industry? Just kind of talk me through it. Well, I, I always loved video games. I mean, almost from as early as I can remember, but absolutely like the first time I, I saw Super Mario Brothers on a NES, I was mm-hmm. like, this is pretty rad. And, you know, it, uh, unlike the Atari, it, it had like super bright, colorful, vibrant graphics. You know, you think about like all the Atari games are all like on a black background and it's like space or very abstract. Yeah, white noise. Mario had this like, happy blue sky and you know little happy clouds on the horizon and this this colorful dude jumping around and right. you know it looked like a cartoon come to life and i was like yes i want to be part of this somehow how old were you at that time man i don't you know, i don't remember how old i was i think i was in grade school when i first saw mario mm-hmm. you know i i was lucky enough that, that my dad brought home a computer from work uh every now and then either on like a vacation or, or you know a, a break Right. And then eventually we, you know, we got a computer of our own in the house and, and I, I just kind of attached myself to it <laughs> and, you know, tried several times and failed to teach myself C programming as a kid. Uh-huh. We had like a, like learn C book and it was like, it was pretty heavy stuff. And like, as a little kid, it was just, it was, you know, not something I could take on, but I, I did eventually, you know, spending lots of time on the computer, eventually get into like BBSs and then mm-hmm. the early internet. and. Um, and I also found that like I could eventually make money doing that stuff. And, you know, I was a kid who always had like lemonade stands and was always trying to make a buck somehow. Right. And so once I figured out I could like make money making things on software on the internet, I was like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. And so I, <laughs> I began my professional career doing web design and development, uh, making websites for companies. Mm-hmm. You know, I was still a huge video game fan and and so, uh, you know, I, I hung out as much as I could with, you know, my friends who, had, you know, were somehow attached to the game industry or, or making little games. And, and eventually a bunch of our clients at the web company ended up being game studios. And so hmm. we did websites for people like uh, Ritual Entertainment, which was in Dallas. And then through them, we kind of got plugged into like the Activision network. And so we did some web work for Activision and the Raven Software, which is in, in Madison. Madison, right. Heretic, right? Heretic, or was it? Is that yeah, yeah. That was like, um, I think that was like the Hexen Two. Okay, um, which was like the the sequel. Hexen was the sequel to Heretic, and Hexen Two was the next one after that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people in sort of the that extended family of the Quake Engine games, you know, that was very centered in Dallas. Right, that's where it was based. You know, you had companies like Ritual and Ion Storm all in Dallas and then other people in other cities like Valve and Raven using that software to make games. And so of course I, I followed all of them. I followed the developments as closely as I could. And mm-hmm. at night I spent time trying to, you know, make mods and learn as much as I could about game development while my day job was, you know, making websites and, and uh, animated gifts for banner ads for them. Right. Eventually I got tired of, of doing the internet stuff and, you know, there's the giant com boost in, not boost, bust, it it, it yeah. and busted. And after that, my company kind of went up in smoke. I was like, you know what? I, I love video games so much. And by then I had friends who were doing it and, you know, and it was a real job for them. I was, like, mm-hmm. I was like, I should just go hang out with these guys and make games and not leave until they, they kick me out. And, <laughs> and so, yeah, that's what I did. I, I, I taught myself as much as I could and eventually found that, you know, the programming and design I'd been doing on the internet was actually applicable to, to video games and multiplayer games. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and by the early 2000s, I was, I was making games full time. Wow. 
No, that's really cool to make that transition, right? And technology that you'd learn and, and pivoting over towards games. So where did you work first? Like what was the company? So the first game studio I worked with in Austin was Team Smarty Pants. And I had known them for several years by then. They they had been making, you know, multimedia CD-ROMs, mm-hmm. um, sort of in that, that era of games for a while. Right. And then they had uh, this concept that they wanted to make uh, board games, uh, not just for computers, but like for, for mobile phones and all sorts of devices. Hmm. This is really early in the cell phone game world, like early 2000s and Jamdat and, and Grayscale and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like we're using like WAP was one of the technologies we use, which is yeah. like, you know, only black and white graphics, no no shades of gray. I mean, it looked worse than a Game Boy. <laughs> and, and it was really cool stuff. And, and, you know, I was able to use what I knew about the Internet to start programming these games. We had we had some really cool stuff working where we worked on like a, a black and white Ericsson phone and a color Nokia phone. And then it also would run on a web page in Flash. And we're like, hey, this is this is like pretty cool. Like you could actually see this going somewhere. Mm-hmm. But we were just like way, way, way ahead of of the curve when it came to, to mobile phones. And I think people were still like kind of barely learning how to text each other. And so the whole notion that they were gonna like go to a website and download a game onto their phone, that was just super alien and a foreign, you know, difficult problem to try to solve. And yeah. Too many hoops at the time. Exactly. And then by then, uh, some of my friends from, from the Dallas gaming scene had, had moved down to Austin and, uh, you know, they started gearing up to start something again. They said, Hey Patrick, you know, you, you don't want to make games. Like you, you want to go, you want to go do this with us? And I was like, yeah, actually like making PC and console games actually sounds easier than making mobile phone games at the time. Cause you know, like we were shooting in the dark and there's no documentation for half of these phones. And right. But one of them was different. And I was like, Oh man. Yeah. Xbox sounds like a dream come true compared to that. Right. So like looking back now, kind of like, like what do you wish you had known when you had started all this? Oh man, that is a, that is a great question. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that like often I tend to kind of want to like find like the, the answer, like there's like this golden fleece out there in the game world. Like, Oh, well the answer, you know, at the time, like the answer was like, Oh, I'm going to make Xbox games and Xbox is going to be the answer. Yeah. You know, and I, I did a lot of work to teach myself that eventually get good at it. Uh, but then like, by the time I figured that out, like, I, you know, Microsoft was retiring the Xbox and Xbox 360 was coming out. And, and you know, I've seen the cycle repeat so many times mm-hmm. with, you know, new platforms and new devices or, or then like what, what happened with free to play, you know, this is a new business model. And, you know, I think I felt like, Oh, well this new business model, that's the answer. You know, that's going to be this thing that we do. And, right. and it's never like the one answer. It's just this ever evolving industry of ours. There's always something new. There's always new technologies to learn. There's always new business ideas to learn. Mm. And so I think, you know, if I could coach myself to be uh, patient and flexible, I think that would, that would serve me well. Yeah. And when you think back to like the original Xbox, it was really just a souped up PC and it was, uh, it was kind of great to develop on, right? The, uh, the support was excellent and uh, it was much more easy to develop since say like uh, the PS2, which was very, oh, yeah, absolutely. very weird and quirky and hardware centric. Yeah. Yeah. Working on the Xbox tools definitely spoiled me when it went back, went to working on other platforms after that. Yeah. I remember, uh, yeah, you, you would have the Xbox and the PS2 and then the GameCube and it'd be like, oh, there's so many limitations with this GameCube and you're trying to do all three developments simultaneously. It was, it was always tricky. Um, so what about advice you would give you know, someone looking to get their first job. 
You know, I think the most important thing, especially now with with how popular game development is and how accessible the game developer tools are, mm-hmm. the most important thing is to be sharing your work. Like no matter what discipline in you're in, art, code, design, audio, writing, production, yep. whatever it is you do, you need to be sharing your work online with your peers as much as possible. And yep. that's not only to, you know, promote yourself and say, hey, I'm here, I'm out here, I do good work, but also to, to get feedback. And, you know, everyone mm-hmm. in this industry gets feedback. You know, even if you're the studio head or if you own the company, you're still getting feedback. You're getting feedback from the publisher. You're getting feedback from clients. Or you're getting feedback from from your customers, the people who are actually going to buy and play your games. And so I think, you know, all of us really need to be in that habit of sharing our work, being open to feedback, being open to improving it, and then learning from that process and, you know, developing a professional thick skin about it. And yeah, uh, yeah I think any, anyone who can take feedback in direction well is going to going to go far in the industry. Yeah, because I think sometimes people tend to, they, they just want to like hide away and do their thing and not share it. And uh, maybe because they're concerned about negative feedback or, or things like that. But yeah, you have to get it out there and you have to hear what people think. And like you said, have that thick skin so that you can take the, you know, constructive criticism and figure out how to get better and, and not, not shy away from that and not just be, I want to do my own thing. And, um, I don't want to show it to anybody because I don't want to hear anything negative because, um, yeah, you're going to hear negative stuff all along your career. So I think the key is to, to accept that and just take it as feedback and not take it personally. Don't internalize it. Just be like, okay, what's your feedback? How can I improve this? And, you know, do something different than share it back and see what people think. It's yeah, such a, absolutely. You know, yeah. The world is so crazy now with just everyone be able to be connected and you have game engines like unity and, you know, you, you don't have to go to these, after school clubs or, or, or meetups or things like that, although those are fine too, but there's so many ways to share content. It's not siloed like it used to be. It's global now, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So what about like, if you're trying to advance as a designer specifically, I mean, cause that's, that's kind of your wheelhouse besides being CEO and starting companies and everything. Kind of. Yeah. So after I was programming games for a few years, I, I realized that I was actually having more fun, like deciding and planning the game. And eventually I, I worked with some good game designers who were like, Hey, actually, you know, what you're doing here is game design and you know, you're, you're not horrible at it, Patrick. So, mm-hmm. so I, I took a couple of years and really focused deep in, into game design. I think game design is a uh, discipline that's probably changed maybe the most the last few years, mm-hmm. you know, the, the early two thousands uh, game design was really about level design, right? Yeah almost every game, you know, like for example, we were making it midway involved some number of characters beating each other up (laughs) and some number of worlds where that takes place. Right. Gray boxing and doing a building worlds and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And and the decisions you make about, you know, what's in those worlds, what happens in those worlds, how people fight with each other, that's game design. And that's what almost all of us game designers did uh, all day, every day. And then, you know, whether it's, you know, scripting the events that are going to happen there or placing the power-ups and pickups or mm-hmm. tuning just how much damage a, a certain type of gunshot does, you know, all sort of revolved around that world. And mm-hmm. in game design now is a profession. And, and when I say everyone, I mean, you know, so much so that when I was teaching adjunct at DePaul and teaching game design and level design, mm-hmm. there was a really good chance that if you could put together good levels in, in Unreal and make them fun and or beautiful, 
then you were going to get an internship and eventually get hired as a game designer. Yeah, I remember those. And so now, you know, the number of genres that are out there and that are popular and, and making a lot of money has really changed. You know, on mobile, you have much more casual games and puzzle games, mm-hmm. city building games. And it's not about the level design or about the combat nearly as much as it is about the economy design, the systems design. You know, mm-hmm. how does this work for a player who spends no money? How does this work for a player that spends lots of money? How is the game balanced at all between them? Do we want the game to be balanced between them? Yeah, those and, are big, big questions, right? I mean, yeah. Totally. And, and now the games are everywhere. And, you know, everyone we know has at least one game on their, their phone, whether they want to admit to it or not. And so, you know, I think as a game designer, I'd, I'd encourage people to, you know, be open and flexible, uh, like I said before, to new ideas, but, but also to, to pick a genre and, uh, that they're passionate about and, and really dive in and spend as much time as possible with the professional tools making game design and game content. So if you're into strategy games, you know, use the, the level editors that come with you know, StarCraft II or, or other strategy games to make mm-hmm. strategy game levels. If you're into action games, make action games. You know, use Unity or Unreal or any of the game engines out there to, to make content for your favorite game. Right. And yeah, and do as much work as you can to recreate content that looks and feels uh, as fun and, and professional as, as the games you love. No, that, that totally makes sense. Remind me, how long were you at DePaul? Because um, I know some people that went through the program when you were teaching there. Yeah, I taught at DePaul for about three years. Okay. So I, th- I think I taught there for yeah, about five, five or six quarters. And then we mm-hmm. did a couple summer projects. Right. Okay. Yeah, we've got a lot of uh, DePaul grads at Level X. So um, Travis Hernandez and people like that all went through yep. the program when you were there. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know, I know Travis and Chase both from DePaul. Yeah, yeah. They're great. And they credit you for being in the game industry. So yeah, that's, that's oh, shucks. <laughs> um, what's been your favorite game or project to work on? That's a big one, but oh man. Yeah. Or top two. Top two. Um well, you know, I think Guilty Party is definitely up there. So Guilty Party is a game we made at, at Wide Load, um, yep. which eventually became Disney's studio in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And Guilty Party, that you know, the the big goal with that was to like make a a fun uh, game that had like the mechanics of a party game, like Mario Party. Uh, we were on the Wii, but like to put put a little bit more thought and intelligence into it. So uh, the the game is a, a murder mystery, or uh, Disney sort of made us demurderify it. Uh, <laughs> so it's a a whodunit mystery uh, in the style of of Clue or. 221B Baker Street, those famous board games. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with like, you know, lovable characters and a, a fun, silly story. And and yeah, I'm still super proud of that game and, you know, proud of how yeah. we walked that tightrope between the total silliness of a party game and then the actual sort of like logic and deduction and, you know, thought process that has to go into solving a mystery. You can't really just click on random buttons infinitely and, and accidentally solve the mystery. You have to say like, oh, hey, I, I understand who did it. Here's how, and here's how I know that kind of prove your case. Yeah, that was like a revolutionary game in terms of um, just, you know, awards and, and the fun factor and like metagame critic and the art direction and the story and stuff like that. I, I mean, I missed that. I, I was not involved. I was, that was pre-wide load for me, but just what you guys put together, that was, uh, 
that was an awesome game that people still think fondly about. And um, yeah, it's too bad there was no sequel there, but it wasn't in the cards with Disney and the IP and stuff. But yeah, yeah, I'm 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 still super proud of that. And um, yeah, just super amazing, talented team there. That um, yeah, we were able to pull that off and. Uh, I, I still think finally on it and having a hard day. I like to go read the Amazon reviews and, you know, just the ones that mean the most to me are like, you know, the ones from like a grandma who's like, I got this game for my grandkids and we just love to play it together. And I'm like, Oh, that, <laughs> that, that's awesome. Like that, that probably like helps make up for like all the action and shooting games I've made, you know, and <laughs> right. put some, some karma in the bank for me. Right. Yeah. No, like I, I remember getting, uh, copies of it through work and I, I gave it to friends and they played it as a family uh, thing. They all sat down and, and played on the Wii and they played all the way through and they, they would tell me how much they loved it. I'm like, yeah, I didn't work on it, but yeah, it's, <laughs> I wish I did, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a hell of a game. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, what about another game? Like what, what's your other top two favorite project to have worked on? Oh man. Well, you know, an, another game from a similar period was uh, John Woo's Stranglehold, which I worked on at Midway. Mm-hmm. And that was a much larger budget game, a very big production. Uh, I was already a huge fan of John Woo's Hong Kong films, and I had been for years. When I started hearing from friends that they they had a John Woo game in production, I was like, "Wait, what? Really? <laughs> How do I get involved in that?" And you know, the Midway was a, a crazy roller coaster for everybody. But yep, I, I I got to work with so many crazy talented people that that Midway had recruited from, from all over the world to work on that project. And, mm-hmm. you know, many of them are, you know, still very dear friends of mine that, uh, you know, we, we, we went, went through this trial by fire together and, and made a game that, you know, we're still very proud of, but the, the process of making that game was, you know, probably longer and crazier than, than uh, anyone would believe or it had any rights to be. Yes. So I'm trying to remember, was it already in production when you, joined um i thought you were there at the beginning but it's midway yeah, so the, sometimes the, the game had been in pre-production when i joined mm-hmm. and i think one of the first things i was tasked with was helping de-scope the game because it, it it was designed initially as a an open world game like gta mm-hmm. you know set in hong kong and chicago so there's going to be like at least you know two giant cities or you know downtown areas worth of, of game content Right. And when I joined, they had just made the decision to say, hey, let, let's focus this more on a, a linear action game and, and focus mm-hmm. on the story and, and sort of the cinematic elements of that. And so I had just shipped a linear third person action game. And I was like, OK, well, you know, I have a pretty good idea about, you know, what's doable and, you know, talking to the producers and the game director about mm-hmm. the, the scope and schedule for for what they wanted and uh, helped pare that down and was sort of like the the fresh eyes on the project when I joined. Yeah. No, it, it had a lot of uh, technical feats and, you know, between bullet time and uh, the deformation and all those kind of things that were going on. It was, uh, it was very cutting edge and, and what you guys were doing there. Yeah. And, and it had super ambitious scope. You know, at one point there was, you know, driving levels in the game and, you know, speedboat levels like the speedboat <laughs> base in Mission Impossible 2, I think was one of the, no, I'm uh-huh. sorry. The speedboat chase is in the end of Face Off. Pardon me. Uh-huh. Uh, but you know, we were trying to pull from as many John Woo sources as we could, and you know, there was a probably a whole another game on the the cutting room floor by the time we were done and shipped. Right. That might have been back during the uh, 
the mag days, right? That was oh the, yeah, right. Multi action genre, as as it was called. Yeah, there was a company wide mandate that Midway was going to make uh, every game was going to be a lot like GTA. <laughs> Which coincidentally it was making a lot of money at the time, so it's like, all right, yeah, hitch our wagon into this GTA thing because you know it, it wasn't a horrible strategy. I just, I just think we should have, as a company, picked one game to do that with instead mm-hmm. of trying to say, hey, let's make eight of these games at all at the same time. Yeah, because it, it is such a huge undertake. I mean, it's just, just crazy uh, yeah. amount of logistics and and assets and design and yeah, it's just it's huge. Um, but no, that was, was really cool about how Stranglehold came out. Yeah, I think it was well-received. And uh, I still have a shot glass from that from somewhere from some Stranglehold event. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a super fun game to make. And, you know, it was almost impossible for us to know this. But the game came out, like, right in between, like, two of the best games made on that console generation. It came out, like, two weeks after Bioshock 1. Right. A couple weeks before Halo 3. And it was just like this giant mass of like amazing cutting edge first person games. Yeah. Like, oh man, we're, we're going to get lost <laughs> in the shuffle. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember that in MK because we would always be trying to get out before GTA would come out because it would just suck all the oxygen out of the room. When, when, exactly. When a GTA came out, you're like, oh crap, GTA is out. So yeah, try and beat him to the punch by a couple of weeks and, um, and stay strong in the ratings. But, but yeah, just knowing that that giant type of game um, that's in everyone's mind and it just kind of takes over. So yeah, that was tough on the timing there. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, just shifting here, but like, what are your thoughts on AR and VR? Cause I know that's something you're very big into and, and you're probably one of the best people to speak about this emerging technologies. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan and, and I have been for a super long time, uh, you know, back before I was making games, one of my first paying jobs, like where I got paid to show up at a building and do work was at like a, a cyber cafe here in Austin that had a, a VR arcade. Hmm. And, uh, you know, those were like horrible, super clunky, super heavy headsets that, that were like, there is a fun novelty, but not the type of thing you could play for, you know, more than an hour without seriously straining your neck. Yeah. And so when... Uh, when the Oculus Kickstarter happened and, and people like John Carmack started getting involved and saying, oh, hey, no, guys, like VR might actually happen this time. I, I of course, my ears perked up and I took notice, uh, you know, started started fooling around with it. And then, you know, just in the last five years, the, the technology has come so far that I was like, okay, I think, I think it might be ready. I think I can, you know, start another company, really focus on, on VR and AR and, uh, yeah, it, it having a shot of sticking this time. Okay, quick question break. What are your thoughts so far? Do you have a topic idea, a question to ask, or a guest suggestion? Let me know at 224-484-7733 or on the gamedevadvice.com website. Right. So Farbridge, was it 2017, 2018? When, when did you guys yeah, start? Yeah, early 2017. The is just over two years old. Okay. No, that's cool. And you've done more VR than AR or, or kind of like, how do you break that down in terms of the stuff you've done and what you're working on that, that you can speak of, right? Yeah. We've done more virtual reality development so far. Um, our first year, we really just did two projects in parallel. One one is like a, an arcade VR experience mm-hmm. uh, that, that we take and license to, to venues and live events. 
Uh, and the other is, is the educational software that's called Masterworks. And um, so it was almost exclusively VR in 2017. And then last year, it was about 50-50 uh, VR development and AR development. So, um, I mean, you know, without breaking any DAs, I can say we, we have at least one of almost every device and dev kit that's out there. And uh, on the AR side, we've been doing some, uh, some AR kits with uh, iPads and iPad Pros, which, which they show really well at, at, at events. Mm-hmm. You know, an iPad on a, on a stand is uh, much less intimidating than asking a stranger to put on a VR headset. Right. This maybe not quite as like mysterious looking, uh, but you know, if, if, if you show people having fun and being entertained, um, you know, playing iPad games, it's, it's not hard to get anyone to, to walk up and play it and they kind of understand the mechanic. And then, and then mm-hmm. they see, Oh, wow. Hey, this is like, you know, this is adding characters or, you know, football players or spaceships to, to the real world that aren't really there. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. And then we've also been uh, doing some early experiments on the magic leap headset, Mm-hmm. Uh, which is uh, an augmented reality headset. So you can see through the glass uh, to see the real world, unlike a VR headset, um, and then has screens in it. And so it adds virtual imagery to to the real world with you. And, and it's super cool. I mean, it's it's still early technology and you know the whole world, I think, is kind of trying to figure out like, okay, hey, what do we do with this? And what's, what's the absolute best use case for this? Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it's it's straight out of science fiction stuff. It, it's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, we have one that... Uh at the office and I've not had a chance to mess with it, but I've, I've seen it and it, yeah, it is really interesting hardware between the glasses and then that puck type device where the computer runs off of. And uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. Um, Oculus quest too, right? I mean, that, um, that to me just on paper seems like it can be a big game changer just because it's such a lower barrier of entry and you don't have all those cables and, and you don't need a $4,000 computer to run it. Now, granted it doesn't have the, graphic fidelity of something on uh, like a Vive, but um, just that less friction, right? Just be able to not have a giant room where you have to have everything wired up and stands and mounts and everything. The fact that you can, I think, what is it? 399 is what the SRP they're, they're targeting for. Yeah. I think, I think that's the price they're aiming for. Yeah. It just seems like having something like that and being able to set it up quickly and um, just jump into the experience and not be plugging and unplugging stuff and getting it to work. And uh, yeah, it's exciting. I, I think we'll see if, you know, GDC, if they announce or if, uh, if it's out by GDC or what's going on with it. Cause I keep hearing late March, early April. So I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also pretty excited about the quest. Um, just like you said, you know, getting any of these devices where it, it's as, as plug in and play as, as reliable as a game console would be a, a huge win. You know, if, if you're doing PC based VR, there's still all the fiddling with drivers and cables, like you mentioned. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of the, the PlayStation VR headset, um, but you're still tethered to your actual PlayStation 4. So wherever that is in your living room, guess what? That's where you're going to be playing VR. Right. And so, yeah, I, I would kill to have a, a really nice, high quality VR experience that I could like take with me, take on vacation, you know, show to my aunt and uncle who live in California and mm-hmm. get their feedback on it without that other friction. And so hope, hopefully the simplification of the technology, making it more user friendly and also a lower price. I mean, hopefully that, that that's the trend that, that all the companies follow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that hopefully that, that helps uh, uh, wide adoption of these, these devices in the next few years. Yeah. Cause it is still very hobbyist feeling right now. And um, just removing some more of that friction and lowering the price points is going to cast a wider net for people to get into it. I think. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I tell people that it, 
you know, VR and AR today reminds me a lot of making mobile phone games in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. There are tons of different platforms. There's lots of competing standards. Everything is in flux. Everything is halfway documented. Right. Uh, and no one I know quite understands what it is that I do again. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, like that for PC games in the, in the 90s because it was pre-DirectX. So like you had to write different drivers for the different video cards and, um, you know, different processors and you had to have huge hardware labs to do all the testing for your games on different hardware configurations because it was pre-DirectX. Right. And, you know, it was Wild West and it'd just be like, you couldn't get to work on a, on a video card and it was small enough. You're like, oh, screw it. You just got to put it in the readme. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, yeah. Voodoo Rush fans. Uh, that weird 2D, 3D chip is not not working, so it uh, doesn't work with your game. But yeah, it was it was definitely scuzzy drivers and uh, jumpers and ports and all that kind of stuff. Um, there was a lot of challenges around that, so it's good to see stuff more plug and play. Totally. Yeah. What about potential threats uh, that you see to the game industry, and along with kind of like the opportunities? for the game industry? Well, you know, I think one of the things that a lot of people are starting to think and talk about is um, just how we're all competing uh, with each other for people's time and attention. Yeah. You know, like most people, I have a smartphone and I spend too much time on it. And I'm cognizant of that. And I'm also cognizant that, you know, that time that I'm spending on my phone, whether I'm playing a, a, a game on my phone or, you know, just texting with pals, that's time that, you know, Five, 10 years ago, I probably would have been like playing a video game uh, on my on my console or, or watching a movie. Right. I think that these sort of distinct industries of production models, whether it's film and television or video games or social media, we're now all very much in direct competition with each other uh, for people's time and attention. Now, the interesting thing is that our industries are also starting to overlap, you know, with Netflix making a choose your own adventure style movie that that's almost sort of like a video game. Oh yeah. Yeah. The branching, right. Branching storylines and stuff. Yeah. And I I think that, you know, that's an interesting admission that our, our industries are colliding. Uh, And then at the same time, you know, there's rumors about pretty much every major video game platform having some sort of streaming solution to work. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Sony still has PlayStation now out, which lets you stream a video game to your console as if you're, you know, you're watching a Netflix movie. It's not being rendered on your computer or console. It's rendered in the cloud. Um, and so to, to hear that everybody's, you know, trying to get into that space and, uh, and, and, you know, more directly compete with Netflix, uh, is pretty fascinating. And so hopefully that's, that's an opportunity mm-hmm. for us, you know, to discover new game genres, to invent new technologies that empower this. Um, you know, I think there's gonna be a lot of hard problems to solve the, you know, the bad news is that, Hey, we, we now have more competition. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, uh, I think we're going to continue to see even more emphasis on, Things like analytics and you know performance tracking of player behavior, just so that we know you know well how much time did the players spend in our games and and what did they do while they were there and then why did they leave and you know is there something we could do to invite them back or is there something we do to you know keep them playing a little bit longer and right and I think yeah. there's both you know positives and negatives to that 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 style of tracking but uh, I think technology wise that's very much the world we live in now and it's going to be a fact of life yeah for sure and. Um... You're right about just so many things competing for people's time because, you know, when you have your smartphone and you're like, you know, do I go to Twitter? Am I going to play a game? Am I going to look at Netflix? You know, I've got... Am I going to listen to an awesome podcast? Right. It was awesome podcast. And um, then, yeah, there's just, there's just so many things out there that um, 
it's about attention. It's about mind share. It's like, what, what am I going to do with this 10 minutes that I have while I'm waiting for a train? And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's wild. It's interesting times now. Plus I think, didn't Google just announce that they're coming out with some streaming hardware game console? Like recently I heard people talking about it at the office the other day. I've definitely been hearing people talk about it. I don't know how much of it is officially announced yet, but but yeah. you know, Microsoft has admitted that they're working on something. Google seems to be working on something. Sony already has something. Um, yeah, and, and you know, when when the whole industry is kind of making a push and you know, rumbling about a, a set of technologies, um, you know, whether you're just starting your career or been in it for a long time, you know, you kind of ignore those trends at your own peril. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're definitely out there. And uh, I've heard people talking about like they're almost trying to like Spotify you know, the game industry. And then is that going to be dangerous to the game industry? Because, you know, if, unless you're Drake, you're not making any money on Spotify. So then it's like, what are the models and, and how are game developers going to uh, thrive and succeed, you know, if everything's streaming? So yes, yeah, I think that's going to be interesting times. You know? Really, really fascinating to see how it, how it plays out. And, you know, I, I think it's always been true that this is a hit driven business mm-hmm. and in any hit driven business, there's a handful of people making hits. And there's everybody else who wishes they were. Right. Everyone else fighting for scraps. And yeah, there's the lion's share and, and the other fighting for scraps. And yeah, I mean, you think about too, that kind of squeezed out a lot of the, the mid-sized publishers, you know, because it was like you either had the big, big hits and or you're just fighting for the little pieces and, and you couldn't compete in AAA and, and they got squeezed out. So yep. yeah, it's definitely hits. Um, yeah, we'll just see what the streaming, of, you know. I, I, I just think about latency and, and like frame rates and all the things you're trying to do. Once you throw that wild card of the internet in the equation, how is yep. that going to be um, affect gameplay? And um, you know. I, I share the same concern. I, I think it's going to be hard to do the most competitive, you know, like Twitch moment gaming. Like it's, it's hard to see like Ed being excited about putting Mortal Kombat on a console that, you know, mm. can't guarantee him 60 frames a second all the time. Yeah, no, because I mean, that was the, the mandate was always 60 because you, you, you always wanted to have that fluidity and just making sure when you press the button, the thing happened and there wasn't that delay, even if it was a fraction of a second. So yep. yeah, when you have that variable, um, how are you buffering? Yeah, yeah it's just... Um, it's, but at it's the same time, I think there's, there's lots of games and genres where you know the latency is not going to be do or die. Anything that focuses on storytelling, like the Telltale style games... Or even an RPG where it's, you know, it's either turn-based or sort of turn-based under the hood. Right. Uh, you know, anything like that, I think, is going to be great for streaming, you know, yeah. especially if it can do things like eliminate download times, eliminate patch times, eliminate load times. Mm-hmm. I mean, because, you know, like we're, we're in the, the business of instant gratification now, especially if we're competing against social media and, and Netflix. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, we could see a resurgence of those game genres in, in a big way. And, you know, just like how every platform has genres that work on it better than others, I think streaming is going to reinvigorate some corners of our industry. We're like, oh man, we, we thought that was dead, but it's back. Right. Yeah. You know, turn-based strategy games used to be, have their own niche and uh, were popular and they kind of died off. But yeah, you're right. Um, maybe, maybe there is room for those that are um, semi-turn-based or yeah, different ideas, uh, different genres. Um, so what about a funny or odd story from working in the game industry? I know that's a can of worms, but I'm just going to throw it out there. <laughs> what do you mean? It was, I work nine to five every day and uh, there's never any drama. You know, uh, what are you talking some, about, John? Some, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, 
you know, most of the, the, the stories and memories are just, you know, you know, about smart people probably working a little bit too much, uh, and, you know, finding ways to like make the best out of, out of that situation. But yeah, one of the stories that, that comes to mind is a Tom Kang story. So Tom Kang was the president at wide load, which, uh, you know, Disney acquired. And especially once, you know, we were all working for Disney, uh, Tom sort of made it his mission to introduce us to, to the game companies and game industry in Asia. Mm -hmm. And so on one of those trips, I was in, I was in Korea with Tom and we're, we're having meetings, we're meeting game studios and we're trying to meet other developers who'd be interested in uh, making games, you know, for Disney or, or, you know, with wide load using Disney's characters and, right. you know, amazing pantheon of characters from, you know, Toy Story, Toy Story to Marvel Comics, right? This amazing, amazing characters to play with. Mm-hmm. And I remember we were in one meeting and Tom like pulls me out of the meeting and I'm real nervous. I'm like, oh man, did I do something wrong? And Tom's like, uh, and we're in Seoul, Korea. Right. And I was like, hey, Patrick, um, they want to show Guilty Party uh, at an event. And I'm like, oh, great. Yeah, awesome. It'd be great to show the game. Uh-huh. He's like, okay, uh, the event's in Shanghai. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, like, who's going to show it? He's like, you are. <laughs> I'm like, what? And so tomorrow, <laughs> uh, it was, it was almost the next day. It was like a day or two later. All right. I'm like, I've never been to China. I've never been to Shanghai. I don't know. I don't know any Mandarin at all. Right. And Tom's like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We got to cover. We got to cover. And so I just remember, uh, Tom and one of the people that worked at the game studio in Korea hand wrote this note that I was supposed to give to the cab driver that was going to get me to Disney's office <laughs> in Shanghai. And I mean, I was, I was sweating bullets. I was like yeah. really worried. Jet lags. Like, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it was a, a truly alien or, or foreign experience for me to be somewhere where I just, I couldn't communicate. I didn't, I mean, I went alone. There was no other Disney rep with me on the flight or at the airport. Uh-huh. Luckily, the note worked and the cab driver gave me the craziest look. And I just shrugged at him. I was like, hey, <laughs> yep. whatever the note says, man, I hope you're going to take me to my office. Right. Uh, I made it. And, you know, the, the event went off like a charm. And of course, the, the Disney employees who worked there, had, you know, they spoke beautiful English and they were super excited to, to have some of us American game developers there. And I, I wasn't completely alone once I got there. Wow. How many people were there? Was it, was it like a, a room of like a hundred, hundred or like. Oh, it was a, a huge event. It, it, it turned out what it was, was it was like Disney's licensing fair. Oh, they were simultaneously looking to license the Disney brand and characters to uh, other companies, you know, mm-hmm. uh, merchandise companies, you know, everything from like uh, plates and forks and cups to clothing <laughs> lines to, uh, to anything. Space balls, the lunchbox, merchandising. <laughs> it really was like that. I felt like I was walking into, you know, like a secret room. Yeah. And, you know, they, they showed like 30 minute clips of some of the, the Marvel films that weren't even out yet. And they were like, you know, hey, you're going to get to watch 30 minutes of Thor and you're you're now going to want to make like Thor T-shirts and you know Thor lunch boxes with Disney, right? To get everyone excited. It was um, a pretty wild, fascinating look behind the curtain, hmm. and uh, that that's the only time I've been to China, so uh, that was pretty cool too. Yeah, no. I, did you fly back uh, Chicago after that, or did you go back to? Korea? I want to say I ended up flying back to Seoul mm-hmm. and met back up with Tom, and then I flew home, and you know we had this you know, rambling eight hour conversation on the flight home. And I, and, I mean, I felt like a changed man. I was like, wow, this is yeah. really broadened my horizons and opened my eyes to all these new possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Tom King's amazing. I, 
I love that guy. I saw him at GDC last year and uh, just full of energy and smart, smart as hell. And just, yeah, strategy and always thinking and always the wheels are always spinning with that guy. He, he doesn't yeah, rest. And- and just so supportive of, of everyone on, on his teams and, you know, mm-hmm. a true mentor. And, you know, I, yeah, I, I really appreciate his, his guidance uh, through those crazy years. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got uh, some chance to work with him a bit at wide load before he went out to Glendale. And yeah, I, I always, I appreciate that time. And um, yeah, he's doing well at Amazon now. So yeah. Which doesn't surprise me because he is such a awesome dude. Yeah. So um is there anything I should have asked you about, but didn't? Well, you know, one one crazy turn in my my career that just shows that everything is goes full circle is uh, after I left mm-hmm. Disney, I ended up starting a mobile games company again. And this time it was for the iPhone. And, you know, like finally it was like, hey, here's a device that actually can make real games and fun games with beautiful graphics. And it was like, you know, mm-hmm. almost 10 years to the day after I started making, you know, crappy black and white mobile phone games. Wow. And that, that was, that was fun. And it's like, you know, lots of new challenges, but sort of like a homecoming. Uh, and then the other surprise right. for me is that, uh, you know, when I wasn't starting the company, I was also started programming again because, you know, we weren't making mm-hmm. games with, you know, levels and characters and so much as combat. And so I was like, well, Hey, the other way I can be productive and contribute to my teams is, you know, by uh, writing software and doing game programming and um, making tools for my team that was like a really pleasant surprise. And, uh, I really haven't like stopped programming again since I started doing that. And, uh, it's been fun to pull that old tool out of the tool belt and, you know, shine it back up to a polish. And then, uh, when, Mm -hmm. when we joined unity, like that's, that's pretty much all we did. You know, it was a a team of just engineers, uh, writing tools that, you know, a good half of the game industry is using now. So that, that, that that was pretty cool. And, and, you know, strange twist of fate. I, you know, if you yeah. asked me in midway, if I'd ever uh, go back to being a programmer or go back to mobile games, I probably would have just punched you, but uh, <laughs> just, just goes to show. No way. <laughs> I'm done with that, dude. That's so eight years ago. Exactly. So, and again, just to kind of share with the listeners, the company that you had developed um, and to be honest, I'm fuzzy about it, but you created um, streaming or, or caching for, uh, with unity and you talk. Oh yeah, sure thing. So our, our mobile game studio in Austin, um, you know, we, we, we kept working with Disney. We, we worked with our friend, Brian Eddy, who by then was at spooky cool, which became, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, part of W or no, uh, part of Zynga. Zynga, uh, Zynga Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. I was there with Brian for, uh, for about a year. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, we, we, we were making mobile games. We were using unity as the game engine. And then, you know, we were kind of spoiled and we were used to having the types of tools we had in the, the console world, like, you know, build machines and good processes. And like, I just remembered the Xbox tool where you could super easily push a build of a game to like all the Xboxes in the building and like, you know, sorely missed that. And so we, mm-hmm. we started working on making our own little version of that, uh, that build and distribution system for the mobile games that we were working on. Mm-hmm. And uh, and eventually, like we're like, hey, like these tools are pretty good. Maybe we should do something with these. Maybe we should like put them on the Unity Asset Store or something. And so right. when we uh, we, we you know we 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 hired a couple of people to focus on them and, and work on them, you know, more than working on on the game side of things. And when we approached mm-hmm. Unity um, about doing that, we're like, hey, so could we do a partnership or could we, uh, you know, license these tools to your customers on the Asset Store? Uh, it turned out the Unity was actually mm-hmm. looking for these types of tools and that they had been kind of contemplating building them themselves and 
And so when they met us, they were like, Hey, actually, uh, we have a better idea. We think, we think we should buy your company and have you guys join unity and, and make this an official part of the tool set. And, wow, uh, th- that was a, that was a wild experience. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a, a fairly fast courtship. Um, but, but we worked out the deal and yeah, our, our game company morphed into, uh, the unity, uh, development studio here in Austin and, and it's still going strong. And, and, uh, the tool that we made became, uh, unity cloud build, which is a, you know, build and distribution system for, for unity games that, that runs in the cloud. Mm-hmm. No, that's really smart that, um, that you saw that need and you had that experience on the console side and instead of just like, Oh, well, whatever that, you know, you guys actually went out to solve it for yourself and then decided to, uh, pivot and, you know, market it and turn it into an actual product. And then, then all this, that, that happened. Well, well things I, I appreciate the compliment, but it was really born out of frustration, you know, like yeah. I was just so frustrated that our, our artists and our game designer who worked on windows computers couldn't make builds and test test with their own work because the, the iPhone builds had to be built on a Mac. And I was like, you know, we, right. we need to speed yep. this up. Like we're just wasting way too much time. And, and also they're like asking me and coming over to me on my Mac, like, Hey, can you make me a build? I'm like, okay, look, the 10th time it was okay. 20th time <laughs> I'm going I'm right. to write some code. We're going to solve this. Yeah. 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 No, you, you saw the need and, uh, and, and you solved it for yourself and then it turned into this thing and you got bought. So no, that's, that's awesome. That's, that's how great ideas come about, right? Cause it's, it's, you're solving a pain point, you know, it's, it's a something that it's like, God, there's gotta be a better way. And, and you guys did that. So that's, that's excellent. Yeah. So and the studio is still there in Austin. You, you yeah. Said, yeah right? I still, so still have a bunch of friends who work there yeah. and um, yeah, mm-hmm. they're, they're going strong and, you know, uh, still working on cloud build and some other, uh, cool top secret stuff in, in the engine. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's pretty cool as, you know, it was an exciting and crazy time to be a part of unity. And I think they grew from mm-hmm. before they acquired us, they were like 300 or 400 people. And then by the time I left, there was like 1500 employees. And so really crazy explosive growth. Yeah. And I wonder what it is now. Right. Cause I mean, that San Francisco office yeah. is huge. And I know I think the headquarters are still uh, in Europe somewhere. Was it Copenhagen? I remember being on some Skype calls when we were having problems at Disney with some Unity tools back. Yeah, sort of the heart of the the game engine developments in Copenhagen, uh, and then San Copenhagen, Francisco is now yeah. like the official corporate HQ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've got a great f- uh, facility there, and uh, but yeah, that's interesting. To see how that company is just blown up, and you hear rumors and grumblings about an IPO in twenty twenty, and you know, all those kind of things. So yeah, it's exciting to see that. Um, and, and see what they'll have at GDC this year. Cause actually we're going to booth pretty close to unity. I'm looking forward uh, to G- GDC and seeing what uni's got. Going yeah. On. Yeah, totally. Always some, some big crazy announcements and everyone trying to one up each other. Yeah. Right. It'll be Epic and unity fighting it out for the booths and space and parties and, and tools and all those kind of things. So cool. So like, where can people find you? Online, uh, website, Twitter, all those usual stuff. Yeah, suspects. my website is the best place to start. It's patrickcurry.com. And you can okay. you can find Makes links to, to everything else there. And, you know, everything from like my old game design blog to a couple of public speaking things I've done, essays I've written, and smattering of, uh, you know, games I've made or, or friends' games that I've advised and, and helped them with over the years. Yeah. No, I, I was on the site earlier today and yeah there's a lot of great links um 
there's a lot of content up there. I was just like, wow, he's got a lot of good stuff up here. Plus it's got all the, you know, LinkedIn, uh, medium. I've seen you've done some writing for medium and some other stuff. Yeah. I I don't get to blog Um, as much as I would like, but, uh, mm -hmm. I I do enjoy it. And, you know, I, I, I miss teaching. And so, uh, you know, I like sharing the, you know, bits and pieces I've learned over the years. Mm -hmm. No, that's cool. Well, great. Um, no, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Patrick. And, um, yeah, uh, I'll get this podcast out and let people hear, hear this cool. great stuff. Thanks so much for having me, John. And, and I'm really glad you're doing this podcast, by the way. Like, there's so many awesome stories and, you know, people from, from the game industry that, that uh, you know, have, have stories to tell. And so I'm, I'm enjoying listening to them all and can't wait to hear the next one. Yeah, no, I just, uh, I finally got off my butt and started doing it. And I started having people reach out to me. Like, uh, I had Sal DeVita ping me the other day on Twitter. So I'm, I'm like, all right, that would be it awesome person to get on the show. So I'm going to be reaching out to Sal and figuring Absolutely. out that. Um, yeah. Nightwolf, NBA jam, NFL blitz. I mean, Sal's a legend. So yeah, I'll get him on there and I've got a bunch of other people lined up. Uh, so thank you. Uh, it's good to hear that people enjoy it. Totally. All right. Thank you, sir. Have yeah, a great you night. Too. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast. If you found it interesting or helpful, please leave a five-star review. I'd really appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe. I have a lot of great episodes coming out. As always, I want to hear from you, the game development community. So give me a call at 224-484-7733 or reach out on the website gamedevadvice.com I want to know your struggles, your questions, and your ideas. Since the podcast is really about you, the fellow game developer, and our game development community. Thanks and take care. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.